Welcome to the one within all to another really fantastic episode of Interverse. I know that because I'm able to uh, read the future. <laughs> and uh, last time we had Jason Quid on, it was quite an awesome conversation. You can find that from the archives back in July, where we talked about his mystical early life experiences, past life recall, teachings he received in the dream realm, his book, uh, The Egyptian Postures of Power awesome book. I revisited this today and did the movements and that was really invigorating. I actually, this time, instead of using ferro cylinders, which is a type of stone in a cylindrical shape that goes really well with some of these movements, I had orgone pipe, earth pipes. So that was like extremely stimulating. (laughs) So I'm really excited to get into it with Jason today. He is here to talk about his brand new book called Astral Genesis. And it's chock full of all sorts of missing pieces that fill in the gaps of various topics that we get into all the time here on the podcast from geometry, mathematics, solar symbolism, the keys to the universal system that we see encoded in all kinds of ancient megalithic sculptures, uh, architecture, you know, across the world, the whole nine. It's really phenomenal. And you can find that book at the crystalsun.com along with everything else Jason does including selling you really, really high quality, super powered crystals. He's got all kinds of information that he's been sharing very generously over the years. There's a lot more that I could say about what I'm excited to discuss from the new book, but we'll get into it. Although one thing I'll tease is I believe Jason may have discovered an ancient cipher that allows one to geolocate themselves anywhere on the realm based on ratios and proportions concealed within the ancient architecture and sculptures and engravings and carvings. So it's absolutely a gravy alert, gravy alert level four incoming. Thank you, Al Dog. (laughs) Going to have a really good time. So Jason, welcome back to the Interverse, man. Thanks for asking to come back on. Thanks for having me. Um, I thought, you know, I had to come back here because um, you, you speak this language and I had to share this new solar language with you and everybody uh, that's connected to the podcast. Uh, so I'm excited to share all this. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. So, you know, maybe catch us up to uh, what's life been like since we last got you on the air and lead us into talking about what inspired you to do all this new research, new writing, and all the many, many hours that it must have took, taken to uh, decode some of the stuff that you're bringing forward in what we're going to discuss today. For sure. Um, last year, I released uh, the Egyptian Postures of Power book, which you just showed earlier. And um, it's a two-part book. And that was the original intention. This was all going to be about the sun, uh, mysticism, movements, uh, meditations, postures, and and astrotheology, obviously. And the second part of the book was more of like the moon. 
So it was all about uh, the journey of the afterlife. It was uh, reincarnation, basic, basically the uh, mysticism and correspondences between astrotheology and um, all that fun stuff, right? So um, I believe I started writing it around the time that um, I spoke to you last. I think that was last July. And I started writing the book. I got uh, maybe halfway through. And I was writing this chapter called uh, The Brazen Serpent, which is a very biblical type of uh, chapter <laughs> from the Old Testament. And and basically, the whole chapter was about um, the um, uh, the uh, the pyramid texts and the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the coffin texts, and how there's a correspondence between the journey of the afterlife and the journey that the sun takes through the constellation of the stars. So I was kind of bringing it all together with all the different mysticism and religious texts and trying to show that the same journey that the soul takes in the afterlife that they teach in these ancient texts is actually um, the exact same journey as the sun takes through the sky during the year as it passes through the constellations. You know, so this was like a, it was a big topic and we were pulling in a lot of ancient knowledge, a lot of secret knowledge from ancient texts, bringing it all together in this chapter. And because I was doing this work, um, you know, you can't take pictures of other people's pictures and throw them in your books. You know, you just can't do that. So uh, because I published before, I knew that you have to kind of take them and, um, find the best pictures and then, um, illustrate them. You know, I had to trace them and illustrate them. So I was, I was going through the different ancient tombs from the Valley of the Kings, Valley of the Queens. And I was, um, just illustrating these beautiful, uh, symbols and pictures from inside the tomb. And I started to notice that there was this pattern and, you know, the images and the symbols were different but they followed a very specific pattern and they followed this kind of solar astrological code. And, you know, we'll bring up some images for your audience to see those. But I started to notice that um, there was something more to these images. And when I figured out what that was, um, it totally changed everything for me. It, It was so big in my mind. It was like, discovering a knowledge that's been hidden for for thousands of years that I don't know anybody who's found this or seen this. I couldn't find any information on this. So I had to basically rewrite the book. I had to stop writing the Egyptian Postures of Power book. I had to pull the chapter, The Brazen Serpent, out of the book. And I said, this is too big for, for this book. It has to be on its own. And then I took that chapter and the discoveries of this code, this astrological code, and made it its own book because, you know, this was, it was too big to put in to the Egyptian postures book. And that's where we are today. So for the past, I don't know, six months at least, um, I've been sitting right here. <laughs> I have not moved. And I've basically been writing this and illustrating this. I have about um, 50 plus examples in the book um, all over the world. And spanning about 12,000 years of history, 
from architecture, art, symbols, megalithic structures, uh, continent to continent, going back 12,000 years to the last ice age. And they all contain this language, which is, you know, I, I still don't know, like, I'm still testing the waters with people because this is a big discovery. So I'm being very subtle about it and, and trying to see um, the feedback. Oh, we're we're borderline schizophrenic over here in how yeah. we see connections and everything. So <laughs> you're in good company. Nice. <laughs> and a lot of the things you just introduced are big, big topics. I mean, just the brazen serpent, we could get into at least half a podcast on that alone, if not more. And so maybe because that's the order that the book takes, it would be a good thing to talk about for a little while. So when we're talking about the brazen serpent, and I, I, I noticed some really interesting things that you pointed out that uh, filled in some gaps for me, but can we introduce this concept and, and some of the details that you bring forward? Sure. Um, well, it, it's a buildup. You can see like the entire chapter is literally just, it's about 60 plus pages of just build up <laughs> to the code. And uh, basically the brazen serpent, it talks about how the, um, it's from the Old Testament where Moses is le- leading the Israelites through the desert and um, the uh, fiery serpents that are on the ground, which are basically the cobras, um, they would bite the ankles of the Israelites walking through the desert and they would be poisoned and killed. So um, basically getting the message from God that they need to create um, a brazen serpent, which is a brass or bronze serpent and uh, casting this serpent and putting it up on a pole so that um, when the Israelites get bitten on their ankles from a poisonous animal, like a snake or a scorpion, all they have to do is look up, so they gaze up into the sky at the brazen serpent on the pole and they will be healed. You know, so this is, um, this is um, a very ancient motif. It goes f- way further back than the Bible. And this is kind of where we lead you into the um, astrological aspects of the story, talking about, you know, the, the serpent rising up on the pole. It could be taken as, um, you know, the serpent's, are the rays of the sun. You could look at it that way from um, the Eastern horizon. It raises to noon, which is, you know, the highest sun above you. The light casts away all evil, cures all things. Helios. Uh, it heals. That's right. And uh, we could look at it um, from the way of uh, spiritualism as in the rising of the Kundalini. So uh, as the the serpent rises up to the top of the pole and you gaze up towards the north, the north is extremely important about this. The north is above your head. Um, you ascend, the, the serpent is released, and you return back um, to your true form of nature, which is um, the spirit double, the ka, going to the north, which is basically heaven and ascension. Um, so there's lots of ways of looking at this type of uh, information. And then it goes further back into Egypt because there is uh, two stories from Egypt that are basically exactly the same as the brazen serpent. So it's a borrowed story. So what we're doing is we're going further back in time and seeing how this story evolved. And uh, in the, uh, the new kingdom and uh, around the middle kingdom, new kingdom. So about 3,500 years ago, um, there is a, 
a motif called Horus the Savior. And it's a picture of uh, Horus as a child standing naked on top of two crocodiles, holding two serpents in his hands on each hands by his side. And uh, basically these amulets, they were hung up on the top of the doorways of ancient Egyptian homes. And if you were to be bitten by a snake or being stung by a scorpion, you were supposed to look up above the door. You're supposed to look up at Horus the Savior and Horus the Savior. There you go. And Horus the Savior would be um, would cure you of the poisonous bites. So that's one aspect of it. Now, if you look at this picture, people that study astrotheology, they're going to look at this and they're going to see something right away. The here. tetramorph. <laughs> we got that going on. You're going to see the lion, scorpion, and the oryx. And the oryx um, yeah, is Taurus, um, Scorpio, Scorpius, and Leo. And the naked child or the naked man is Aquarius. You know, so these are the four cardinal points of the zodiac in the sky that, that give you your solstices and equinoxes. And if you look at this image, he's standing directly in the middle. You have Bess above his head. Uh, Bess, you can, you know, in my opinion, Bess represents the Northern Star. Um, back in that time, it's either Kochab and um, uh, Ursa Minor. And um, basically, as he stands in the middle, he is basically um, the serpent bearer off the Ucus. Uh, standing in the galact on the galactic horizon, um, in the center between the equinoxes, and he's representing the child, which is uh, in Aquarius, which back then would have been um, the winter solstice. You know, so he's the new child being born, the new son being born, and he's stepping on top of the crocodiles, which again it's also um, symbolizing Ophiuchus standing on Scorpius uh, on the galactic center. So there's all these astrological aspects to this one image. And this one image was the start of how I started to decode the other symbols going forward in the book. So this was like the key to me, which showed um, the, the Zodiac. It showed Horus, the sun, as the, the birth of the new child, standing as Ophiuchus, the, the, um, the serpent bearer. And um, if you go look at the myth of Osiris and Horus, um, it's, a, it's the same myth that goes on with uh, Orion and Ophiuchus later in the Greek mysteries, is that um, Osiris dies, goes into the underworld, and that Horus is, is now the savior of the world. So, you know, when, Os when Osiris goes into the underworld, it's summertime. You know, when Osiris rises, when Orion comes up in the night sky, Ophiuchus goes below. And now Orion, Osiris, is um, in the sky, which is uh, the wintertime. So it's a counterbalance between um, the sun's journey throughout the year. Um, so that was the start of how he started to decode the brazen serpent.
there's a lot of details worth getting into here. But one thing that blew my mind that I didn't know, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things in your book I didn't know. <laughs> I'll get that straight. But the Hebrew gematria value of the word nakash, which would be like nun, shin, hey, right? I think that's correct. Yeah. Uh, it is 358, which is the same value as mim, shin, hey, which is Meshiach or Messiah or Moses. Moses is even literally spelled the same way as Messiah in Hebrew without the vowel points. So very interesting how this idea of a brazen serpent being a salvator or uh, bringing salvation. I mean, even the word serp and salve are philologically linked so that the, I, you know, this is where you get the idea that you he, fake healers give you snake oil. <laughs> the salvation and the serpent have been hand in hand for a long time, probably going back to the ancient Ophiolatry cults that looked at the sun itself as a serpent in very like the uh, analemma shape very much is like sort of a, a snake eating its own tail in a figure eight shape, which is analemma being the shape that the sun makes throughout the year. If you were to photograph it at the same time every day, this figure eight, there's so many details that are worth mentioning here, but I'll just stick with how interesting it is. This concept of Nakash being also bronze or, uh, Let's see, bronze, and what's the other one? Well, the word itself means bronze. So in, in ancient Hebrew and even ancient Arabic, bronze and serpent were the same word. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And it makes me wonder if the bronze age is code for the serpent age. Because we're looking at, at some level, we need to have a, a type of maritime empire going around the world or at the very least traders, as the Phoenicians are said to be, being able to get to South America, to North America, to all the areas of Asia. Phoenicians were said to have actually circumnavigated Libya, which is what they called Africa, the Greeks did. And very important to the whole trade was their secretive colonies on Britain, actually. Uh, Britain was a place where a lot of mining was being done. And it was also like a breadbasket. There's so many similarities between ancient Britain and ancient Egypt that seem to link the two in that time period that we call the bronze age. Fascinatingly enough, the most, uh, one of those links would be like the way they made beer was only that those two places did it that way. But the big export for the ancient world during the bronze age would have been the tin from Britain. <laughs> <laughs> and tin is required to make this bronze. So the fact that we have this bronze age and that there's some kind of circumnavigating culture spreading tin around, even the very idea of tin as a word meaning the number tin, which is wholeness and the the serpent on the the staff being like an X in a way. An X is also an ancient symbol for 10, 10 being like the yod, you know, the, the hands, yes. 10, the number 10. There's so much there. I, I couldn't even begin to unpack it off of the cuff, but it's, uh, it's all very much there. And the idea of 10 representing like wholeness or completion, like the number, not the metal. Uh, and also Jupiter was said to be related to the metal 10. It goes on and on. And, you know, if you're looking at um, the serpent um, during that time uh, period, 4,500 years ago, uh, Thuban was the um, pole star 
at the time. So, uh, which is part of Draco, which is part of Draco. So you would have the dragon, you would have the snake iconography as the top iconography of the time. So it was a time of serpents. Absolutely. (laughs) Another thing that I find fascinating is how in that Horus image that we just looked at, how he's in the middle and he's the man of the equation. Therefore, he's Aquarius. And also in this time period, we're thinking Aquarius would be the winter solstice. So that's the gates of the year. And so it's not a surprise that you see a lot of forms of he's holding a serpent in each hand. Or then there's even versions of the deity where he's two headed Horus and set. And then uh, one that I'd never heard of is this Neheb cow. Uh, And that's a double headed, two serpent heads being. And so this is just resounding with the idea of Janus, which is also the gates of the year, January. Exactly. Exactly. And it's almost like the two heads, they're looking at the two hands. So think about it as um, you're standing in the middle of the equinox. You're, you're in the middle and either the sun is going to move north or it's going to move south from the equator. And it's going to give you the winter solstice or the summer solstice. So um, you get these uh, solar deities standing with these two rods or two serpents in their hands. And this symbol has been around for at least 5,000 years. Um, the, one of the oldest ones was found in Peru. So you have these staff gods or these gods standing with the two serpents, and they're finding artifacts of this in Peru. And you see it in Egypt at around the same time period and going further. So how can this be a coincidence? It's the same symbol meaning the same exact thing, which is the equinox moving into the solstices. Yeah, and what's seemingly one of the more important aspects of the ancient system, of the wisdom system, being that serpents also are symbolic for wisdom, would be that we're really looking for the microcosm and macrocosm within the universe of this idea of destruction and regeneration of all things. So because they see this happening on the yearly circuit, they, you know, these ancient wise men were trying to reckon the way to understand if this happened on larger cycles and maybe a a bigger type of cataclysm and regeneration, even to the point of uh, this idea that the Indians brought forth of yugas and such where the whole thing is completely obliterated in a huge time time span and brought back. So this, I, like we see in ancient Egypt, all kinds of aspects of the, the savior or Ra or whoever it might be on the boat, the boat being the ark. This is the symbol of that recapitulation or regeneration of all things after the destruction. And I've, I'm really interested in all the ways that we can pinpoint that symbolism because it seems to be, there's a lot of flavors of it, but it seems to be one of the core things that if you understand that as a key, you will know what you're looking at in cultures all over the place from the ancient world. Yes. And uh, Ra on his boat, you know, Ra is basically the sun moving. When the deceased dies in the Western horizon, they join with the sun as it sets to join to get on that boat, uh, the solar barge of Ra to travel through. So it's it's a way of traversing the night sky. It's a way of traversing the spirit world and going through that cycle. And this is what I love about uh, ancient Egyptian mysticism is that everything is connected. Everything is a correspondence 
So just as the sun goes under the horizon, it was, it was viewed the spirit after death goes under the horizon. It joins the sun in that same journey. And even uh, the book of gates uh, takes you through the hours of the night, you know, so each hour you're, you're going through each constellation or each of the gods or each of the gates. And um, as you pass through it, then you rise of the Eastern horizon reborn as the resurrected sun or, or, or Horus, you know, so it's all connected. It's all the same. And these are the keys. So when you're looking at this from a bigger perspective, we're getting to the real roots of uh, mysticism, the real genesis of mysticism, which is just learning about the natural cycles, learning about the rhythms, um, learning about the universe around you. And the most beautiful thing about the code is that it's based on you and your relation to the universe around you as the physical body is the solar measuring stick or the, it's the cosmic man. And once you understand that key, that's where all the measurements unfolds and it opens up the solar motif. Oh yeah. I'm really glad you said that because I had it in mind most of today. Like we got to talk about that. We got to talk about that. And I, I'm a little bit from the hip today, just expecting that we're going to get to all the things as we should. I, I didn't overdo it with taking notes or, or with, you know, planning out the conversation, but what you just said is so crucial. And maybe you even have uh imagery that we could look at that at Let that us, idea so what sure and i'll introduce it a little bit more the what jason's getting at is in this concept of the microcosm and the macrocosm and man being the measure of the universe the sun is seen as uh so literally like a solar man because as i came to learn from some of the examples jason shows in the book the way that we can use our physical body as the measuring tool to know where the sun is at in its cycle is reflected is a, is believed to have reflected the fact that this the the cosmic proportions are in alignment with the human body's proportions which then leads us to all of the really interesting measurements that you were able to decipher out of looking at some of this ancient stuff exactly so uh probably everybody knows this already um this is a very ancient way of measuring time and it's using your body. So basically you stick your arm out. So you do an outstretched arm and, and listen to these terms because these are biblical terms that come up in the Bible um, a lot. So you have the outstretched arm, the outstretched arm of God, for, for example, and then you're looking at your palm of your hand, just like this in the picture and you put it out to the horizon and you can measure the sun. So from the horizon to the sun over the four fingers equals one hour of time. It's 15 degrees of sky. And it, look, I'm six foot four. You know, I don't know how tall you are. Oh, you got a few inches on me. I'm six two. Okay. So, <laughs> but you're so, good and you're tall enough to be trustworthy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so the cubit is from the base of the elbow to the top of your middle finger. And that's a measurement of your personal cubit. So my cubit dimensions are different than yours, right? But if I put my hand up and you put your hand up, we're going to get the exact same measure of time. All right. So it's, it's because it's a ratio from your eye, from your eyes ratio to your hand to the sun, 
gives you 15 degrees of arc or, or one hour of time. So you become a measuring tool. And this is where uh, the concept of you're made in the image of God comes from. Because the physical body is made with the proportions, the sacred geometry portions and ratios that are observable in the um, the universe around you. Now, if you go to your hands, which I just put this up, your hands are used as a, um, your hands can be used as a measuring tool as well. And you can see by putting your hand out, you can measure 45 degrees. I know it's not on here, but 90 degrees, 15 degrees. 23.5 degrees and 15 degrees. And that's not even to count the fact that ways that you can divide your digits also give you other cycles like the lunar cycles and whatnot. Yeah. And inside the, the palm, uh, if you're looking at your hand, you have actually 14 um, divisions, uh, 12 on the fingers and two on the thumb. We give you 14 and you get the, the, the solar cycle, 28 days. You can count this way, wax and waning. Um, you know, the still, kingdom of heaven is literally at hand. <laughs> that's right. And this is why uh, Yud is 10, which is creation God hand. You know, it's all in your hand. You got the whole world in your hand, right? Anyways, let me let me just show you some something else here. Uh, where would this be? All right, so here's Toth. Um, so this is an image on the left. Um, this is an ancient artifact, which is in the, the Louvre, a Louvre, however you say that in French. Um, but this is, they call it a clapper, a musical instrument, but it's actually showing you uh, the cosmic dimensions. It's showing you the cubit and it's showing you the divisions of the cubit. So you can see that it's divided in 10. And the arm represents from, from the bottom to the top is one cubit length. And cutting off at the hand at the wrist, it's about seven tenths of, of the length. And here is um, a picture of Toth from Abydos. And he's showing you the dimensions, uh, 23.5 degrees. And I know I haven't really covered that, but 23.5 degrees is the um, tilt of the earth. So the Earth tilts from the equator to the north 23.5 degrees, which gives us um, the solstice going back to the equinox or equator and then going south 23.5 degrees. And that also gives you the solstice. So it's showing you that um, the body of Toth is a measuring tool and it's showing you um, the movement of the sun 23.5 degrees from its eye 15 degrees to its hand, showing the cubit, showing the hand width showing 10 degrees from the eye. So basically, these images are not just simple images um, drawn by random people. These are images that were done meticulously by the priests to encode very secret knowledge within the pictures. And it was only the, the priestly class or um, the pharaohs who were taught how important this was. Because remember, if someone screwed this picture up, it would be taken down and redone. That's how important um, this artwork was. And then the 15 degrees, just for everyone to reckon the importance of that, that's an hour of how far the sun travels in the arc of the sky. Yes. Yes. So every 15 degrees of the sky is um, one hour of time. And 30 degrees, which is two hands, 
uh, 30 degrees is a constellation. So of the Zodiac is divided into 12. So to get through uh, one house of the Zodiac, it's, th- it's 30 degrees or two hands. So everything, all the basis of these teachings, this astrotheology teachings, uh, really the fundamental part of it comes from the measurements of the body and how it integrates with the cosmic man and with the universe of how things move. Uh, I want to go a little back here because we've got to talk about this kind of uh, astral theology aspect of things. So we have uh, the procession of the Zodiac, uh, which takes uh, 25,950 years, I believe. And um, it's divided into 12 constellations, uh, 2,160 years, each age. And so right now we're in the age of Pisces. If we go back in time, we've got the age of Aries, which is the age of the, of the ram. Go back to the age of Tauri, uh, Taurus, age of the bull. And we're moving into Aquarius right now. And each one of these cycles takes 2,160 years. Now, um, just showing you how this kind of works. Uh, from spring equinox, uh, the sun raises in its altitude to the summer solstice, which is the highest altitude in the sky. So it's the longest day of light. So light overcomes darkness on the summer solstice. And then it descends back to the autumn equinox. So light and dark are equal. And this is where you get those images of the dual characters of Horus and Set with the two heads, because you have the light and the dark are completely equal as the equinox. And then as it descends into the underworld, which is the winter solstice, so the dark winds, you're in the underworld. Uh, it's the longest um, night and it's the lowest altitude of sun. This is a better image. Okay, so this the is a sine wave of creation. Yes. So this is, and this is not the way it actually looks. You know, it's, it's actually uh, flat. You know, you, the elliptical, it's a flat plane. But because the Earth tilts this 23 degrees over the year, you, you're, you're looking at this tilt as this up and down motion, which shows the Milky Way going up and down in the serpent type serpentine motion, right? And as the sun travels through this serpentine motion of the year, through the Milky Way, um, you pass through the 12 houses of the zodiac and um, I want you to just look at the sine wave as the, the Milky Way. And um, let's say over here, well, this is where Orion is, but really let's go back here. It's the start of the sine wave. Um, let's say um, you die or the sun dies and you're going into the underworld and you're going to Osiris. Um, this is like going up through um, heaven. Right. So you're going through um, the judgment. You're passing through the different houses. When you get to the center point, which is right in between the sine wave, this is where you have Sagittarius, Scorpius, and you have Ophiuchus standing right around the galactic center, which is right in the middle here. And this is where um, it would be Horus or the, the serpent bearer. And this is where you become healed. Serapins is the serpent that heals. It's the, it's the raised serpent, the brazen serpent is serapins. 
So this is what heals you. Now, what happens from here is you could either ascend to heaven, which is the northern sky, which is around here. So if you follow Serapins, it takes you to Draco, which is the uh, North Pole. So this is the ascension going through Ophiuchus. Or if you're going into hell, so you go down into the lower world. And what is here in the lower world, you have Hydra, which is the monstrous serpent. Um, underneath here, you have um, Lupus the wolf, um, Centaurus. So this is like the underworld where all the monsters lay. So you got the scorpion, you got all these monsters here in the underworld. So just by looking at the movement of the sun, as the earth tilts through its yearly passage, its solar passage, you get this um, story, the solar motif of the sun dying, the sun being resurrected, or the sun going into the underworld and hell. Just simply by following the progression of the, the Zodiac. Now, what's really interesting is this astro theology is in the Book of the Dead as well. So here's the Book of the Dead uh, for the singer of Amon. So here's the singer of Amon, who's passed. You have Isis standing behind her, taking her to Osiris. And you can see Isis holding the grain of wheat, shaft of wheat. And if you follow astrotheology, you know that this is uh, Virgo, the virgin Isis. You have the scales, which is Libra, which is the gateway of the sun between light and dark. You have Anubis, which is Canis Major. The interesting thing is this, um, the bull's leg, which is Boots and Octurus, during the winter months, uh, when Osiris rises in the winter months in the sky, Octurus, the bull's leg, rises sideways, almost presenting itself on the altar of Osiris. And Osiris is obviously Orion. So you can see that even in the Book of the Dead, it's showing you this veiled astrotheology theme. Um, that carry through into biblical text, but it comes even before all of this. You know what? And one thing about astrotheology that is demonstrable, if you look at it long enough, is that these characters here associate with the constellations listed in this diagram, but also they uh, they will appear in different parts of the sky. Like Odin is sometimes Ophiuchus. He's sometimes Sagittarius. And when you consider Osiris being like the king in this metaphor, Osiris is for sure Orion most of the time. And the bull's leg and Arcturus definitely fit there. But then in the Dendara Zodiac, the, the Egyptian Zodiac that we have a, the, a big sculpture of, or whatever you want to call yep. it, yep. <laughs> the, the leg or the thigh of the bull could also be the Ursa the Major Ursa now, Major. right? This big dipper. And that's revolving around the, the throne, North. North yes. and throne are anagrams for each other, interestingly enough. So you can also consider that whoever the king of the gods is, is at the North, and that, that thigh is circling or wheeling around him. Yes. Yes. And um, again, there's also, uh, remember, we're talking about the sun, right? So the sun takes on many forms. So um, as the sun moves through the constellations, the sun character can, 
can change. Uh, so like Osiris and Horus is actually the, the sun. Yeah, it's, it's literally like the stages. sun is an actor playing different characters throughout the year. That's right. So as it passes through, it takes on different roles and different stories and characters. And, you know, here's another one where um, Tyre, Tyre Watt, um holding the leg of the bull from a rope. And this is an ancient aster, asterism because um, um, the Big Dipper, the star of the Big Dipper of the handle, um, points directly to Octurus in boots. So as uh, the Big Dipper spins around during the year, it's almost like there's a rope connected from the from the handle of the Big Dipper to Octurus. And you can see in this depiction, it's showing you um, Osiris slaying the bull or, or killing the bull of Octurus. It's showing you that as um, Osiris rises, the bull's leg um, go sideways as, as the offering. So it, it, it talks about um, ushering in the winter months, showing these different um, asterisms. But let me let me show you this. Ah, uh, yeah, I was really interested in Antoi. I'd never heard of this unification of Horus and Set. It's a very strange symbol, and there's many different variations of this, which I included in the book. Um, but basically you can see, you know, Horus and Set in one body because again, they're not two different beings. It's the sun taking two different roles. And when the sun is in the center at the equinox, um, it's both light and dark. It's the division of both worlds. And this is why they stand on, this is the children of Horus or two of the children of Horus. And they're in the, they have the body of the Sphinx. And they're holding the hands horizontal over the crowns. And what's very interesting about this, which is getting into the whole solar code, is if I overlay just a simple angle on top of this image, this angle is 23.5 degrees, which is the tilt of the earth. And it, like we were talking earlier about the hands as the measure of the sun. So if you go straight down the body and get to the hands, it's 23 Point five degrees goes through the crowns and you can see that it sets legs moving this way so the legs are moving towards set and the body of the sphinx is supporting set all right now keep this in mind let me see if i have this image so that would indicate that we're at the fall equinox correct so you're moving into the winter now this is where it gets interesting this is the and this is the first step of the code that we're talking about now, the first step of the solar code. So this is the grounds of uh, Giza. So you have the Sphinx over here. You have the three pyramids. If you mind, before we get into this, I yes. want to just point out something that really blew my mind because I'd never heard of the four sons of Horus. This won't take long to lay sure, out. But of course. in terms of the fingerprints of a universal system, I was fascinated that Horus had four sons that were like four forms of him because they correspond with the four directions and the four elements. And that is a perfect one-to-one -one mirroring of Buddhism where there's the Adi Buddha. It was like the father top Buddha, top G. And then he has, there are four other Buddhas that have different names that are named for the directions and for colors and for elements and so on. So 
you know, when you see the, these divisions like that, you know, you're looking at a wisdom tradition that is not, they're not originating separately and just coming to the same conclusions, in my opinion. And they come from, or they stand on the lotus of creation. You have the four suns standing on the blue lotus. Yes. The same image in Buddhism and Hinduism. The lotus is the logos is the ark. Yeah. And um, so when you're looking at the, um, oh, and also the four suns are the four bodies of the Adam Kadam body. It's the uh, uh, Yudhe Vavhe. Uh, it's the four bodies. So it, it goes, it, like I said, it comes from very ancient mysticism and then it's reinterpreted, but it's exactly the same story. It, it doesn't change. Um, this is the grounds of Giza. You have the Sphinx over here and the three pyramids. And during the year, this is where the sun sets behind the pyramids. And at the summer solstice, it sets between Khufu and Khafre, the two mounds. Um, at the equinoxes, this is where, where it's really important. At the equinoxes, you have an optical illusion that takes place. So if you're standing in front of the Sphinx and you're watching the sunset on the equinoxes, it looks like the sun stands on the back of the Sphinx. So think about that. The sun stands on the back of the Sphinx. Okay, so here we have the image of the on sun the standing on the equinox, standing on the equinox on the back of the Sphinx. So it's the same exact thing that actually occurs uh, that you can actually see this in real life. You can go and watch this. So this is the first key that started to show me that um, there is this astrological measurement of time of cycles based on the sun and its journey through the heavens. And, you know, people um, agree that this is the, um, the three stars of Orion, which makes sense, but it's also the three suns. So the dimensions of Khufu is, uh, the, is the ratios of the summer solstice sun. Kefri is the ratios of the equinox suns. And Menkari is the ratios of the winter solstice sun. It's, it's, it's how the sun looks in the sky on the height of the altitude. All right. So, so these, this is, this the sun is super important for understanding the Trinity concept that you see everywhere. And uh, a light bulb moment for me as I was going through this in the book was realizing, oh, the equinoxes are the same, but different. Whereas the solstice is you're at the height of light and the height of darkness, right? So they're kind of yin and yang in that sense. Creator, uh, and then this idea of the creator, destroyer, redeemer, the destroyer would be the fall equinox, but the destroyer is also the regenerator. And to like what clicked for me was to realize, oh, the destroyer and the regenerator are the same quote unquote person. Because just like you showed in the imagery of set Horus in one body, depending on which equinox it is, the sun is doing the same thing, the equal division of day and night, but it's leading towards regeneration or it's leading towards destruction, depending on which one it is. So that's how you have even a kind of quaternity within the Trinity, in a sense, where that one character is actually both roles. And then later theologians got that all mixed up and they're like, the devil... <laughs> Is the devil, there's a devil out there not understanding that the original doctrine was that this is a, a, the regenerator being as well. It's not like an evil thing. Not at all. 
Not at all. And you're absolutely correct. And you see this in the Trinity in all these different religions. So uh, it's a very ancient concept. And the Trinity is the three sons. The, 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 sorry, the three steps the sun takes in the sky during the year. And and remember, it's like, and this is why it was important that you read the book first, because um, it's almost like I had to learn a new solar language. Um, you can start to see in these ancient scriptures, this theme of the sun standing up, you know, and seeing the, the symbology of you have uh, different deities who are on the ground, different deities that are kneeling different deities that are standing up straight or different deities that are sitting in a chair straight. And each one represents where the sun is in the sky. You know, if they're standing, it's this, it's the summer solstice. If they're sitting or kneeling, it's uh, the, uh, the equinoxes, or if they're on the ground laying down dead, like Geb, it's the winter, the winter solstice. Oh, sorry. Never mind. It's actually the opposite. When Geb is laying flat on the ground, it's the summer solstice. But um, there's very interesting things coming even back to petroglyphs of uh, images of, of people or, or beings with their heads cut off, which represents the fall equinox. It's not, you know, say, you know, people killing each other. It represents a time of the year when when all the plants die and you have to harvest them. So there's, we've, we've laid out the first step of the solar key really well in terms of before our break at the roundabout the hour point, I don't know if we can adequately unpack the next steps of the key. So we, we can save that for the other side or people yeah. can get your book, but I will, I have a few questions uh, maybe that we can look at before we switch over. So the sure. first one that uh, another big uh, key for me was realizing you mentioned in your book, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but this idea of the qubit, you know, the measurement that is a part of the ratio of the human being um, is something that possibly the culture was using their pharaoh or their head priest to measure what the kingdom's current qubit would be. Is that true? In the sense that a new dynasty or new age, maybe they would re redecide what the measurements were. Is that correct? And that's the thing is that uh, the cubit wasn't a set in stone thing because everybody had a different cubit length. So in Egypt, they made the cubit um, 20.5 inches roughly. And that was the average of the cubit. But then if you take four fingers above the cubit like this, that gives you a royal cubit. So it's a different thing. So uh, a cubit is 24 fingers from the base of so 24 fingers. And then 28 above the hand. So you have the solar numbers 24 and the moon numbers royal cubit 28. Now what they would do is they would take the measurements of the pharaoh of the time and his four fingers would then become the royal cubit. So every um, pharaoh that would come would have a slightly different ratio or a slightly different measurement. So the the 20.5 inches, if you wanted to add the the royal cubit to that, it would be a slightly different measurement each pharaoh. So yes. So that is another thing that I believe at some point, if I can find the receipts on it, can help us link 
Egypt with the Far East because, and again, I don't have the actual reference, but I have come across information in my life that I'm looking to find a, a way to verify. So anybody out there that knows this could help us out. But that in the ancient Chinese empires or dynasties, they did the same thing down to the very, down to even like when a new dynasty would take over, they would look at it as if the, the kingdom of heaven is also changing, so to speak, that this is by, you know, by divine decree, the old family's out, the new family's in, the new measurements are being set up. And to the point where this idea of the cubit, although they weren't calling it that, would also represent a musical note based on the length of a flute or a pipe that was the new ruler's, you know, length. <laughs> and that would actually become the tonal center whatever note that that produced would become the tonal center for all the, like legally you had to play music in that tonal center during that age or that dynasty. So if we could find more specific reference to that information, that would be a really cool way to link Egypt with China. Cause that's such a specific practice. That's amazing. And um, I talk about this a lot as creating your own tune, creating your own resonance you know, just like the, the Pythagorean uh, musical theory, you take a string from top to bottom, and that is your fundamental frequency. And if you take that string and you divide it, then you have your own harmonics, exactly the same as what you're talking about with the flute, you know? So if you created an instrument or a, a stringed instrument, wind instrument based on your geometry, then those notes, those frequencies would resonate with you. And that's not the way music is created these days, but that's, that's magical music right there. Seriously, you guys just got like a, a major <laughs> metaphysical or esoteric uh, upgrade. If you were to pursue that, I mean, I'd, I'd like to pursue that. That sounds, I would like to know what the sound of the note that my personal cubit is. That's so cool. Another great thing about knowing these ratios. So funny example, uh, my, <laughs> my sweet lady Jennifer, she was talking about the Shroud of Turin because we were discussing, you know, things I'd learned in this book. And she said, I remember looking at the Shroud of Turin when people were making a big deal of it. And that's supposedly the shroud that is a holy relic that was covering the body of Christ and all that. And she's like, I knew from art school that the ratios of where the eyeballs were and the length of everything on the face was wrong. So I knew it was fake right away. <laughs> so, you know, there's, it's interesting how. The uh, the Egyptians are looked at as a sort of lesser culture in artistic development because of the way they sort of plant everybody two dimensionally and they're doing the walk like an Egyptian thing. But actually, if you, you get down to it, they're encoding something much more important than photorealism. Yes. And um, even the image that you have in the background right now. And there's a lot of controversy about Akhenaten and his children and, you know, why are the skulls this way? And you could look at Brian Forrester's work and you could actually see the skulls um, from all over the world. So there are skulls that look like this. This is a real thing. But um, I, I decoded this one as well with the cubit and the ratios, the solar ratios, and they fit perfectly into the skulls. So it's, it's even encoded in the images and, and what blew my mind about the whole Akhenaten thing is that um, he was so into the sun. He was so into the Aten that um, 
I think that these depictions of Akhenaten, he was trying to encode the solar measurements into his physical appearance and the physical appearance of his children. He was trying to encode the secret dimensions that we're talking about in his images to become an Aten god himself. You know, like you look at Egyptian images and they're all about the solar deity, solar gods, right? You have Ra, Horus, you have all these solar deities. But here, Akhenaten is posing himself like a god as himself, but within the solar dimensions. And this is why his body features are all way off. And it doesn't look that human because he's encoding a language into the actual image. See, that is the kind of insight that we have you here for. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Well, Jason, tell them about where they can get the new book. And, you know, we can also lay out what other things you have on offer, other books and other things that they can pick up on your site. Sure. Um, you can go out to my website, thecrystalsun.com, and that has my books and crystals. Um, you got Egyptian, po- sorry, Egyptian Postures of Power, and you have Astral Genesis, which is the new one that we're talking about tonight. Um, and you can also get them off Amazon, quick and easy. So um, that's where I am. I was, I apologize. Um, I was kicked off of Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I lost about 25,000 people and all those combined. Um, I don't know why I was kicked off, but I was, but, um, so I'm slowly rebuilding that. I don't have Instagram yet, but, um, right now you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I am very active on Twitter. Right on. Cool guys. Well, we're going to get into the next steps of this solar key and what it might mean for this idea of, uh, circumnavigating ancient universal empire of star you know, star navigating mariners. And there's a lot more than that that we're going to discuss, but it is all about the math, the mayat, the angles. You guys should definitely go check out the crystalsun.com. And I highly recommend picking up Egyptian Postures of Power. It's also a great book that you will learn some very easy to master movements that I say master, easy to learn, but that could take you a long time to energetically fully integrated master. It's a type of Qigong based on what Jason was able to derive by looking at the ancient uh, Egyptian artifacts and the postures that are shown in those. And we have a great discussion on that from back in July of 2022 that I highly recommend people check that out as well. It was a riveting conversation (laughs) and I'm enjoying this one quite a lot. Guys, come over to the Rockfin side. I'll drop a link in the live chat. And if you want to you know, support the podcast and get the next hour of this conversation, you can do it. And also we'll be reloading it to Patreon after we're done here. So Jason, it's been a pleasure and I'm looking forward to uh, going deeper with you, brother. Thanks for having me again.
Oh, 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 oh,